words are so good, especially for communion morning. And so real quick, I'm just going to go ahead and teach you the chorus because it repeats the whole time through, and it's pretty easy. So you're going to go, you are worthy. Your turn. You are worthy. You are worthy of your name. You are worthy of your name. You are worthy. You are worthy of your name. Jesus. And that's the chorus every time.
Father God. Lord, thank you so much um, for just being so worthy of your name, God. Lord, all the things that song reminded us that you are for us, our, our helper, our healer, God, our hope, our savior, um, God, our, our hiding place when we need to escape everything here, God. Lord, may we find um, a sweet hiding place in your word this week, God, as we just um, take an escape from everything going on around us, God. Lord, we lift up all of our prayer requests that was mentioned, God. Um, we know we're surrounded by so many that are sick and so many that are hurting, God, but we know that you are still the creator and you are still in control, God, and you're in charge of every situation, Lord. So may we never doubt or question um, your un un unrecognizable um, goodness, God. Lord, we just praise you this morning, and I pray that you continue to be with us during this time of study, God, as we worship you through your word, God, and then to, as we take room, um, communion, Lord. We just love you and praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Hey, thank you, Catherine and Russ and Kyle, for reminding us of the worth of the name of Christ and what he's done for us. Uh, turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. Oh. Great material here, to say the least. That's an understatement because it's God's Word. And in verse 25 of Luke 10, we have one of those main things that is the main thing. One of my favorite sayings about the Bible is the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. This morning we have before us one of those plain things that, that, that are the main things. It's going to start in verse 25 with two words, and behold, because Luke wants us to really focus in uh, and drill down deep, for lack of a better term, on, on what we have before us. There's a story about the great Green Bay Packers football coach Vince Lombardi. Uh, oftentimes he would take his professional football players when they were struggling and he would, he, would, he would hold a football in the locker room and say, guys, this is a football, okay? This is the main thing right here. I thought of that as I studied this week because look at what Jesus directs us to this morning. Luke chapter 10, verse 25, and behold... A certain lawyer stood up and put him to the test. We notice from the very beginning that he gets off on, a wrong, on the wrong foot, right? He's putting Jesus to the test. And he says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? You're a lawyer. You're an expert in the law. How do you read it? And he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. And here's another sign that his heart is a bit hostile to Jesus. 
And it's a very important phrase in understanding his motive. But wishing to justify himself. Wishing to justify himself. He said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now what I'd really like to have there is the tone. Because you can tell a lot about uh, a person's, the meaning, you know, in the tone. We don't have that. Who is my neighbor, Jesus? I want to read the rest of the chapter because for the next two weeks after this one, we're going to be expounding on this. And in verse 30, we're, 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 we're going to find a familiar story. And we'll talk about this next week. This, I believe, is how we love our neighbor. And so Jesus replied to this question, well, who is my neighbor? He says, well, a certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went off leaving him half dead. And by chance, a certain priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. And he came to him, he bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said... Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, the one who showed mercy toward him. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Go and do the same. Now, as they were traveling along, he entered a certain village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. And she had a sister called Mary. You're familiar with this one, Mary and Martha. Who, moreover, was listening to the Lord's word, seated at his feet. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations, and she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only a few things are necessary, really only one. For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. So we've got the great commandment, then we've got the good Samaritan, how we love our neighbor, and then we've got the good part, and Mary demonstrates how we love God. With all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So now you know where we're going today in the next two weeks. So we better pray. Father, thank you for your, your word. How it guides us and instructs us. And also how it truly convicts us of our sin. And how we fall very far short of this great commandment. I need reminding of this. We all need reminding of it. Father, I pray that through our time together as we prepare our hearts for communion. That... Uh, that your word would do its perfect work in and through us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So just verses 25 through 29 this morning, I want us to feel the weight of the greatest commandment. 
I want us to think about it and understand it and, and, and feel the weightiness of what Christ wants us to feel this morning. Now, as I announced earlier, Mr. Philip George died this week. And I'll never forget a conversation that I had with him several years ago that led to his profession of faith and baptism over in our old sanctuary. I had known Philip my whole life. And to my knowledge, he had never really been in church. But he called me one day and he said, Neil, he said, I'd love to have a conversation with you. The conversation boiled around or centered on, he was a truck driver and he was out somewhere, and I can't remember where, but someone had confronted him with this ultimate issue. If you were to die today, where would you spend eternity? If you were to die today, where would you spend eternity? Would you have eternal life? And so, Mr. George wanted to have a conversation with me about Christ and how to be sure that when he died, he would spend eternity in heaven. I thought about this, that this week when he passed. I relived a lot of that conversation. And then here we have it right here. How do we know that we have the gift of eternal life? That's the ultimate issue, isn't it? That's the, that's the ultimate question, isn't it? So this lawyer poses to Jesus the most important issue in all of life there in verse 25. Now let's get this lawyer... Let's get an idea of who he is in our minds. Because last week we saw that God reveals to babes, humble children, his truth. But I think this week we have not a humble child before Christ. We have instead a clever adult. A big know-it-all. In fact, he was an expert. And as the saying goes, everyone, everyone is an expert until they're not. <laughs> he's an expert in the law, but there's one thing he's not doing. He knows a lot, but what does Jesus say? Go and do this. That's the part that exposes that we are not an expert is when we try to put this into practice. But to help us feel the weight of this command, the greatest commandment of all, I'll remind us of a couple of things that Jesus said in other places in the gospel. In Matthew 22, this same issue of eternal life and the great commandment comes up. And Jesus says there that on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. On these two commandments depend the whole law and all the prophets, the Old Testament hinges on these commandments. In Mark 12, he said, there is no greater commandment than these. So, in real practical terms, we've got to get this right. I mean, what are we supposed to be doing with our lives? Here it is. We are called to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. That sums up the law and the prophets. So, Let's make a few points this morning about the law and what we can learn about the law that will drive home for us the weight of the law. First, let's think this morning about the fact that God's law reflects the character of God. 
God's law reflects the character of God. In other words, if we have a law, what the Bible wants us to remember is that from the law comes the great lawgiver. The law is not just out there. The law was given to us from, from God, from a person. So if you go back and read the Ten Commandments, which I did today, because what we have... Well, I didn't do that today, but I did it this week. You ought to go back and read the Ten Commandments and notice the context in which they are given. There's the righteousness that God has in Himself. He is holy. And His law reflects His holiness and His character so that if I break the law... I am alienating myself, and I'm going against His holy character. The Ten Commandments, the context in which they're given to us, and again, read through them. God is presented to us as Creator. He's presented to us as Judge. He is presented to us as the one who has all authority, perfect holiness, and perfect consistency in every aspect of His character. But it also tells us the great lawgiver is also a savior and a rescuer. Because when he introduces to his people those Ten Commandments, the law, he says, don't forget, I am the one who did what? Who brought you out of Egypt. I saved you. I rescued you. So the law just didn't come to us, wham, like a police officer. It comes, us, it comes to us more from... From a heavenly lawgiver who is holy, but he's also, he's grace. He loves us. The God who is holy also includes within that the fact that he loves us. This takes us all the way back to the very beginning where we have the Bible saying, In the beginning, God. Psalm 24.1 The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So when Paul talks about the law in the book of Romans, he tells us that the law reveals what we already know about ourselves. And the law reveals what we already know about God and life. But Paul says we suppress this truth in unrighteousness. We know in our heart of hearts that there is a God, that there's right and wrong, that there is a law. But we make excuses for our violations of his law, but we're not so good at making excuses for other people. In other words, we will make excuses for our sins, but when others violate God's law against us, we know it, we believe it, and we feel it. So you may find a thief getting very angry that, that other people would steal from him. <laughs> Or a liar saying, I can't believe you lied to me, right? We don't feel the weight of it until it happens to us. We know there is a law. So the law reflects the character of God in that He is holy. And He is righteous, perfect in every way. Not only does God have righteousness, but God demands righteousness. These are not suggestions. They're not options. They are what? They're laws. These are the ultimate rules of life. We shall have no other gods before Him. We should never take His name in vain. We should never live inconsistent with His character. 
So when this lawyer repeats to Jesus what the law is and how you sum up the great, he knows it. He's got the vertical part of it. We've got to relate rightly to God. And he's got the horizontal part of it right. We've got to relate, relate rightly to people. We're called to love God and love people and to do this perfectly. So the great commandment sums up God's law. It reflects his holy character. And it puts the law in a positive sense. You know, the Ten Commandments come across as, as don'ts, right? The great commandment which sums it up tells us what we actually are called to do. And what are we called to do? T to love Him. And to love other people. Not just not to harm them, but to love them as we love ourselves. This tells us that we are created for love relationships with God and other people. That's who we are. We are social beings made to love. Made to love God, others, ourselves, and even life. If you love God and you love people, you're going to love life. Have you ever heard or thought about someone who is going through a difficult time? And you may have said to yourself, man, they've got to be hating life. You ever said that? I was on a bus one time with a schoolmate, and we looked out at somebody who the rain was just pouring down on them. They had no umbrella, no protection. My friend turns to me and he says, that guy's got to be hating life. <laughs> we know the feeling. But this commandment revolves around love, not hate. Loving God, others, even ourselves, and life. So the first thing we need to feel when we look at this great commandment is the fact that God's law reflects the holy character of God. The second thing that I and we need to feel is that God's law exposes our corruption. The law tells me and shows me how sinful I am. So let's work through this great commandment and let's test ourselves. Do we love God? Do we love Him? Not in our fallenness and our sinfulness and our selfishness. No, in fact, at best, we are antisocial toward God. And what that means is sometimes we treat God like we treat other people in Walmart. We pretend we don't see them. You ever done that? Oh, wait, just keep walking, you know. But the Bible tells me not only by nature am I antisocial toward God, but my mind, my fallen mind, is hostile toward God. So in reality, by nature, we don't love God. We're actually opposed to God. Then the second part of this is do we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? That word all, you know what it means? It means all. I mean, is your heart and your mind and your strength completely in love with God all in all the time? No, that's what it means to be a sinner. We've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness. Do we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? At our best, we're half-hearted. <laughs> At our best, we're growing in this, and I'll get to that in a second, but none of us have perfectly loved God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let's, let's jump to the, to the horizontal. Do you love your neighbor as yourself? 
Let's be honest. I thought about my son Asa. He wrote a book when he was in elementary school, and the title of the book was All About Me. <laughs> and it's a really good book. In fact, I think I read portions of that book here before. All About Me. And we flipped through that, and we loved it because Asa was talking all about him. But, you know, as adults, sometimes I think I'm writing and living a book, and it's all about me too. That's who we are. The law exposes our corruption. The law shines light on us and exposes how sinful and how corrupt we are. Do we love God? Have we loved God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Do we love our neighbor as ourselves? No. We've failed. The Bible tells us we've missed this mark. That's what it means to sin. It means to miss the mark. We have not hit this target. The Bible tells us that we also, in relation to God's commandments, have committed iniquity. That means we've, we've bent what was straightened. We've, we've twisted it. We've tainted it. We've taken this commandment and we've just, we've just wrung it all out. We've twisted it up and perverted it. We've also transgressed it, which means we've, we've crossed the boundaries of, of God's laws. If we're not quite convinced yet of how the law exposes our sinfulness, think about how perfect this law is and how severe the demands are. It's like asking us to jump the Grand Canyon. Could we jump the Grand Canyon? Absolutely not. We would all fall very short of that. Could we reach the stars? Absolutely not. We could all get out here and jump up and none of us could even begin to touch the ceiling. Here's one that I remind us of. Could your mind and all of your thoughts this week be displayed on the screens in front of us? All your thoughts. Of course not. Our minds are fallen. We have not loved God and others with all of our minds. In fact, by nature, we love sin. We love darkness rather than light. I could keep giving us bad news, but I must move on. But the law, commandment, when we break God's law, commandment breaking, someone said, is not the arrival of evil. It's simply the confirmation that it was already there. The law reveals what I already and who I already was and am. J.I. Packer says that sin is endemic. It's endemic. It's a positive, destructive principle that's already in us. A hereditary impulse rooted deep in our nature. And the reason that stood out to me is that I heard somebody recently say that COVID now is endemic. It's so in our community and in our culture and in ourselves. It's, it's everywhere. And I had just read J.I. Packer say that sin is endemic in us. So what are we to do? If the law exposes our guilt and brings about wrath, we have a problem. The law opens our eyes and shuts our mouths. So we see the foolishness of verse 29. He wishes to justify himself. He cannot. He knows the law, but he could never keep it. He could never do it. Have you read the Sermon on the Mount lately? And what the law really demands when it comes to our thought life, 
in our hearts. Have you read 1 Corinthians 13 lately and what love really is about? Every time I go through 1 Corinthians 13, I'm convicted because I can think of times that week which I violated God's love and His, His rule on loving. His question gives him away. Well, who is my neighbor? He's looking for an out. He's looking for a loophole. He's wanting to excuse himself because he knows he's not loving God and he's not loving other people. So he throws this question at Jesus. Well, who then is my neighbor? Would you help me? I'm glad he asked the question. Because then we get, we get the story of the Good Samaritan which we'll see next week. He's looking for an out. He's looking for an excuse. He's trying to justify himself. himself. So we notice here his pride, his, eva- his evasive attitude toward responsibility and culpability. He's passing the buck. He doesn't want to change. He wants eternal life on his terms. But Bonhoeffer said, and we went through this, I know, a couple of months ago, the Christian is the man who no longer seeks his salvation, his deliverance, his justification in himself, but in Jesus Christ alone. We cannot justify ourselves. We cannot do what the lawyer is trying to do. He knows it, but he could never do it. And the fault is not in the law, the fault's in us. So let's move to the third point. If the law reflects the character of God, and if the law exposes the corruption of man, that's the bad news. Let's get to the gospel. Here's the good news. The wages of sin is death, and that's the punishment we deserve. What about the gift of eternal life? That's what the lawyer was asking about. How can we have, how can we obtain, how can we inherit eternal life? See, the law has a purpose. And Paul says the law is our schoolmaster to drive us to Jesus. The law slays us, condemns us, reveals our guilt. And that just sends us to Jesus. The the law makes necessary the good news of Christ. If those who break the law are under a curse, as Galatians teaches, I want to remind us today as we get ready to take communion that Jesus became a curse for us because the Bible says, Cursed is anyone who dies on a tree. So God comes down in the person of Jesus and guess what Jesus does for us. He fulfills the law perfectly. He has perfect righteousness. He is sinless and he is righteous and he is perfect and he is pure. That means that when we watch Jesus live his life from the very beginning to the very end, this is what he did. Jesus loved his father with all of his heart, all of his soul, all of his strength and all of his mind. Look at the life of Jesus, absolutely perfect and pure in every way, morally, spiritually, submissively, 
He came not to do His will, but the Father's will. Father, not my will, but Your will be done. He prayed in Gethsemane. Has there ever been a greater demonstration of perfect love for God ever? No, Jesus had that. Not only that, but did Jesus love His neighbor as Himself? And greater love has no one than this, that He lay down His life for His friends. Here's my point. Jesus kept the law of God perfectly. Where you and I get an F, Jesus made a perfect A. But not only did he live a righteous life keeping the law perfectly, but he dies the death we deserve to die on the cross. So not only does he keep it in its positive demand, but he dies for the fact that we failed to keep the law. He dies as an atoning sacrifice for the penalty of my sin. But that's not all. The gospel is not just Jesus lived a perfect life. And the gospel is not just he died the death I deserve to die. But the gospel includes God giving us a new heart and a new mind and, and, and new desires and new appetites. In fact, in fact, the Bible tells us, I'm going to give you a new heart and my spirit is going to live within you. So let's think about this for a minute. The law drives us to Christ for salvation. But then the last thing I want to say is that the law now becomes the course of worship for the life of the Christian because God has sent us a helper. God has taken the law off of our backs and he's put it where? In our hearts. So now, because Christ lives in me, we really can begin to grow and feel and know what it means to start to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to start to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's the transforming work of the gospel. He lives the life I should have lived. He dies the death I should die. And now he takes the law off my back and he puts it in my heart. So what we could not do and what the law could not do, God did. And he does. So you take a living example like Michael Creed and look at what God did in Creed's life and is still doing. He said Wednesday night, he said this two or three times. It stood out to me. He said, I'm casting my whole life on Japan. And what he meant by that is that he was all in for Christ and the gospel in relationship to mission work in Japan. And I know that, and you know that. You know that God has not only saved him, but God is working in him with his life and his gifts and his skill. Michael now is beginning to love God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and he's beginning to love his neighbor as himself. Why? Because God has saved him. God has changed him. God has taken the law to love off of his back, and he's put it in his heart. And God has a wonderful example of that all around us in not only Michael, but in, but in other people. So here's the promise of the new covenant. That we will be given a new nature. And we will be given God's spirit. And that he will put in us his love, his life, his heart, 
the love of God now dwells in us so that we can begin to live out what is eternal life. Eternal life is not just a, a length of time. It's a quality of life. It is life and life abundantly. It's a new life in relationship to God and others, which we still continue to fall short of, but we're growing, and it's being cultivated through the fruit of the Spirit so that we begin to say, not who is my neighbor, but how can I, how can I be a neighbor? So the greatest commandment revolves around love. And the good news of the gospel is that God will not only forgive us, but he will change us. And he'll give us a new heart. That's what the law demands in you and demands in me. So I want to share with you briefly a couple of things and then I'll close and we'll take the Lord's Supper. It's amazing to me to think that God would allow His love and His light to live in us so that we can begin to fulfill this commandment and live it out. My brother and his family went to Churchill Downs in Louisville this summer on a, a vacation that, that they had planned. And one of their stops, they rented, a, they rented an RV. you got to ask Jake and Ashley about the RV and how they enjoyed being in an RV for a little over a week. But one of their stops was at Churchill Downs, where, and I'm not a horse racing guy. But they toured the facility, and, and my brother told me what I thought was a neat story about Secretariat. You ever heard of Secretariat? Secretariat in 1973 won the Triple Crown. Secretariat has been called and may be the greatest racing horse of all time. Secretariat still holds the fastest times at the Kentucky Derby, the Preakness, and the Belmont. Since 1973, no times at any of those courses has broken what Secretariat was able to do. A few years later, when Secretariat died, they did an autopsy on that horse. That's not the right word, but that's what they did from my human mind. And my brother's telling me this, and, and what it revolves around is the heart that Secretariat had that was the X factor that made that horse faster than any other horse. When they opened that horse up and saw the size of his heart, the doctor said, or actually, the doctor said, we were all shocked. He says, I've seen and done thousands of autopsies on horses, and nothing I'd ever seen compared to it. The heart of the average horse weighs about nine pounds. Secretariat's heart was almost twice the average size. 22 pounds, more than twice. It was all about what was on the inside. <laughs> that's, that's, that's true of us. That's true of what God is doing in us. The goal of our instruction, Timothy says, is love from a clear conscience and a pure heart. Let's not forget the greatest commandment. This, this is a hate-filled life. In our current state. A lot of people are communicating what they hate. 
right? But I'm going to close with a personal illustration that <laughs> two famous musicians died this week. One was the other half of the Everly Brothers. And so when a great musician dies that I was kind of connected to, I'll go listen to some of their songs and kind of relive. Now, the Everly Brothers were before my time, but when I was growing up, this other man who died, Tom T. Hall. Tom T. Hall died this past week. And I was like, man, Tom T. Hall had a beautiful voice. And my dad loved him some Tom T. Hall. But Tom T. Hall had a song, and I listened to it again this week. And my dad used to sing this song. He's going to be here at 11, and I'm not going to tell this part. <laughs> but he used to sing this song to us when we were little and riding in the truck. And that's why it st stuck out. He had his own version of this. <laughs> I can't get into that <laughs> by any means. But Tom T. Hall wrote a song about the things that he loved. And I thought to myself, you and I ought to make a list sometimes of the things that we love. Not what we hate, but what we love. And Tom T. Hall says, I love little baby ducks and old pickup trucks and slow moving trains and rain. Yeah. I love little country streams and sleep without dreams. And Sunday school in May. And hey, H-A-Y. <laughs> hey, sometimes it's tough to love when the dust is getting all in your hair and your nose. But then he says, and I love you too. Now there are more lines to that song, but I've always loved that song. And the reason it's standing out to me now is that he's gone. Tom T. Hall. <laughs> But that love is still there. So let's think about our own lives. Let's go back to Philip George's question. If you were to die today, where would you spend eternity? Do you have eternal life? Do you know you have eternal life? What's the evidence that you have eternal life? The evidence that you have eternal life is there with Tom T. Hall. It's all in what you love. Can you say in your heart of hearts that you love God? That you love Him? That you love God? Because look at what He's done. We love because what? He first loved us. And do you love other people? Not just tolerate them. <laughs> Not just put up with them. And that's part of love. I mean, do you really love people? Because if the love that God has for us lives in us, then we, then we don't have to smart off back to Jesus and say, well, who is my neighbor? We'll be looking to be a neighbor to people if that kind of love dwells in us. So let's pray that we would be that and that as we take the Lord's Supper in closing, that we're, we're remembering how God demonstrated His love for us. He, he did it. He did it. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your love for not only us in this room, Lord, but your love for the world. The Bible says you love the world and you gave your son. That's, that's the basic gospel. We pray that our lives would love in such a way that we would 
demonstrate that we have in us a different quality of life, eternal life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, I hope you were able to get a cup. If you did not, you certainly have my permission right now to go and do that before I lead us. Then after we take communion, we'll sing our hymn of invitation. Let's peel off the top portion there. And again, this is not ideal, but I'm grateful that we can meet and remember uh, his broken body and his shed blood in this way, you know. Paul says, I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus, the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. So let's take the bread. And when he gave thanks, when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And they did eat. In the same way he took the cup, so likewise, let's take the top off the cup. Now here's the new covenant right here. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And they did drink. Amen. Let's stand and sing our hymn of invitation. Nothing but the blood.
Thank you, Catherine. For all I know, we had already sung all the verses. I was just singing, you know. Need to hear one more time. Anywhere before we close? I know we got Sunday school right now, so we will dismiss you guys. Thank you all for being here this morning. Catherine, if you'll close this, please. Praise God from whom all blessings